My name's Jason Fleming, and this is the More Than My Past podcast from the Forward Trust. Now an erudite and widely admired writer, the early part of Owen James's life was very different. Age seven, Owen lost his mother in a car crash, and his father took to drink and domestic violence in his grief. Under that tragic backdrop, he began a criminal career which led to a total of 53 convictions, culminating in the murder of two men in London in 1982. Owen fled the country, joined the French Foreign Legion until he was tracked down by Scotland Yard two years later, going on to serve 20 years of a life sentence. Initially writing from prison, he chronicled that life in an acclaimed Guardian column, followed by three books, including 2016's Redeemable, as well as in the current role as editor-in-chief of prison publication Inside Time. I spoke to Erwin about his own story of redemption and views on prison reform, as well as the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, which require prisoners to be locked in their cells for 23 hours a day, something Erwin himself experienced early on in his stay at Wandsworth Prison. I have read bleaker backgrounds, you know, doing this podcast, but yeah. um, only just, <laughs> and none, obviously, as beautifully and heartbreakingly recorded as um, as you did. And it's it's a great read, and uh, I hate that you suffered that, and I hate that any any child suffered that. You know, I deserved all that was coming to me. I mean, not not the early years, but later on, I brought on most of that myself, all of it myself. Having said that. You know, you said that had my early life not been so traumatic and more secure, I'd never have grown up to be someone who would harm others and do what I did. Well, that's what I think, Jason. That's what I think. That's what I believe. Because if I didn't believe that, I mean, why am I not a bad person now? You know, I don't do bad things. I'm helpful and, you know, good neighbor. And You know, I don't think anybody's born bad, Jason. I don't think any... I'm every type of person in prison that you could imagine. Every type of offender. All the people that we hate in the tabloid newspapers or, you know, all the terrible people that we read about with their crimes. I was one of those people. Uh, but the vast majority of people I met in prison had the desire not to be you know, bad people, not to be criminals. Um, and for various reasons, they ended up being criminals. There's no excuse for crime, Jason. If you've read my stuff, you know I, I make no excuses. But how do we, isn't it important that we try and figure out how, how people become who they become so that we can sort of try and rectify issues that when people end up like I did, causing pain and grief. I mean, even in its simplest terms, you know, like you just said, you know, I I believe, I mean, I've been in and out of prison for years and I know I'm a romantic old lefty and, you know, I give people the benefit of the doubt more than than some, but most of the people I've met, as you've just said, the majority of you put your hand out to help, they'll take it. And uh, they have a desire to be more than they were when they went in. That's why I still do this, Jason, because I'm not going to lie to you. It's difficult in some ways. I'm still, I've got a nice life. Yeah. I made it myself. You know, I got a chance by the grace of my society. I got my second chance. But I had to work like hell in jail to try and, you know, develop skills and build skills and uh, and things to make me able to sort of live a decent life. And then got out of jail with skills, thank God. Never never saw that coming, I'll tell you. I know. I mean, you said in interviews, I've, I've been listening to interviews with you before, and you said that, you know, everyone everyone gets opportunities. It's just whether you're ready to take those opportunities or not. And, you know, you you seized that, you know, it could have passed you by that and it, and you seized it. And, you know, you've got no one to thank for that but yourself because you did it yourself. I didn't realise, Jason, when I was in jail, I chose a path, but I was guided there by that amazing lady, John Branton, you know, the yeah. psychologist in uh, Maximum Security Monster Mansion Prison. <laughs> yeah. We were the worst of the worst. And she, she, her little, this little lady came in to try and 
help us to figure out a way to live a better a better way without causing harm and distress again that that was her job uh you know i was i wasn't her blue-eyed boy she was the same to everybody but what i realized once once she sent me on that path i realized that the path I chose, well, education and then writing, you know, I became the guy that could write a good letter. And so I was always in writing groups and prison magazines and that sort of stuff. Uh, and, and over the years, I didn't realize I was preparing for opportunity. I didn't, I, I was just trying to find a good way to live in prison. Because uh, sometimes I, t I, I talk to uh, young people in schools, you know, and I, and I say, look, you're preparing for opportunity. Because the, the, the danger is opportunity comes. And and you're not prepared, and it passes yeah. you by. Yeah. You know? No, that's. I mean, I think that you do something you love. You know, when I'm not, you know, in the nick or talking to you, I'm I'm an actor, and I and I love I that. But we have been allowed to do that and paid to do that, earn a living, do that, which is a glorious and amazing thing. But you know, when those opportunities came, you you, you know you seize them, and if fate is going your way, and you're lucky enough to to, to create a career and create a living out of that, it's amazing. When my mum. My mum always used to say to me, she used to go, she, my mum brought me and my brother up on her own. Oh. And she did, like, she worked two jobs, blah, blah, blah. And she was, used to say, listen, Jay, if you had a bad day, because I'd had a bad day at work and I was moaning or something, she went, look, if you've got problems emotionally or with your love life or what with whatever, come to me. But don't ever come to me and say, I've had a bad day at work, because 98% of the population hate every minute of their work. And, you know, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I was like quietly shut up and haven't said anything to her about it since. But it's true, you know. You, what an amazing thing you've done to have found something that you're good at and that you well, love. I'm lucky, I was lucky. I was lucky. Yeah. But Jason, here's the thing: I, I I did it through chance. This is the, this is one of the reasons I still talk about this. I, I did it through chance, not by design. You know, the prison system. I was lucky that I was robust enough mm -hmm. to sort of to, to manage the, the ducking and the diving and the vagaries of prison. Because it, it, these places are hellish. Now, yeah. I'm not saying there should be luxury places, but the fact is our prisons are hellish places. Yeah. What we do have on, on the good side is amazing people who work in those places. Not not all, but some, we have some fantastic people in those that know exactly what they need to do to change the courses of, of lives like mine, you know. And I, I was lucky I gravitated towards those people. You see it on the wing, though. You see... Uh... You see guards that the inmates sort of get pulled towards. You know, you can see. You that. can see it. You see it. Yeah, yeah. you see. I've, I've never had anything against any prison officer. Some, some of the fine, the noblest, one of the noblest men I ever met was the prison officer who came to tell me my dad had died. Yeah, I was in. I was. I've been in fifteen years or so. His name was Dick Green, and um, what a fantastic, just an amazing, noble human being. But there are a lot of people who work in prisons who. You know, they don't think about prisoners as humans, as fellow humans. They're in the minority, in fairness. But it's our system has created a sort of environment where people are not really sure what, what they're doing there. That, and I mean, the prisoners and the staff. Before then, I mean, just to take you back, you talked about learning your skills in prison and, and, you know, your writing in prison. I mean, even though you're always strong, like you make it clear in the book that during your childhood, you were strong at English. In fact, that was your only place of, of where you felt confident or where you felt at least you had a skill. When you got into the Nick and you started writing, I mean, how did that happen? You know, what was the first time you started writing in prison? You know, what did you had you been doing it when you were on the road? You know, when you were out and about and drinking, and were you still? No, were no, you, no, no nothing, no. nothing. I I didn't write anything from when I left the children's home. I was fifteen when I left there. 
and that wasn't a terrible place, but it wasn't a nurturing, loving place. It just wasn't. But it wasn't terrible. It was just, it was just a bland, sort of neutral council. Anyway, I, I left. I hadn't been writing at all. I, I left school with no qualifications, and the whole chaos of the next few years. There was never a moment where I thought I could write something. Of course, I went to prison. You're asking me that now, Justin, but there were glimpses. You know, in those teenage years, there were glimpses because I could write a good love letter. Yeah. I've never really talked about that before, but I, I could write a good love letter. And, and so, did you I, use your so those love letters? Because all you know in the book, I mean, you're quite open about it. But the the heartbreak that you caused, and the and the women that you uh, sort of drove trains through their lives, and and those letters were they were they part of because the, they seemed to take you back. I mean, I never got away with anything when I got the sack from a girl. I was gone, <laughs> but you seemed to be taken back so many times. And was that I was taken they, back? Do well, you think the, the most, writing helped that? I don't think it did. But there was something about me, I think, that there was a sort of, I was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde, really, if I'm honest. When I want to look back, mm. there was so much unpleasantness in my background. I, I didn't believe I was lovable. That's, that's the yeah. thing. I, I didn't believe when anybody said they liked me or they loved me, I, I couldn't believe it. And I think that comes from the childhood where I never really had, there was nobody I could trust when I was a kid. And and so I, th- I think that fed into into my teenage years where, where I was totally, you know, undeveloped. Christ, I was, a, I was a wild boy, you know, troubled and causing all sorts of trouble. But I didn't start writing straight away. It was after Joe. It was, it was once I once I was met Joan Branton, the psychologist, who said, you've got to get an education. And I started to do essays and things. And I got compliments for the way I was writing my compliment. And then, and then so I don't know how it came about, but I, Somebody said I, he writes a good letter that, you know, me, yeah. I got the reputation of being able to go, write a good letter, which I liked. I, I'd never done any, anything really for anybody before. Before I went to prison, I wasn't, I was not really, I didn't do anything for other people. You know, I was not a helpful person at all. But in jail, I found something that I could help people with. So you're asking me, you know, where, where the serious writing came from. It was a few years in. Yeah. And. You know, I'd, I'd been through a riot. I was in, I was in a riot in Long Larton Prison in 1990. Two days after the Strangeways riot, barricades went up, flames were burning, and um, my next door neighbour was in for killing five people. He he said, "Let's go and kill the nonces," <laughs> and I said, "I said, make it for goodness' sake." Well, worse words than that. But I said, "I said, let's not do that tonight." He hanged himself, actually, six months after that riot. The thing is, I'd managed the years of prison and found a way to live that was, yeah. dare I say, a, a decent way to live, whatever people think about people in prison. What happened was I wrote to, I was fed up of what, reading the newspapers, Jason, about how great our prisons are. They're holiday camps. The prisoners eat steak. The pensioners are starving. I started, I, I started to write to newspapers. Eventually, the independent newspaper wrote back to me and said, well, look, we're not going to publish your letter, but write us an article about prison life. That's that's how it started. Wow, that was, that was 1994. I'd been in I've been in jail ten years, and also at the same time, Owen, you were kind of right. Were you like writing like letters of appeal for for other prisoners or for other prisoners? Yeah, I was, I was doing that sort of stuff, doing representation things. Yeah, so yeah. I, I had become that chap who, yeah, who that you, was you, need, you need something writing. I wasn't a lawyer at all, but I could I could put words together in a way that people needed them to be to be done so that's that's sort of how that happened before that you know in the early years in the nick you were known as the legionnaire weren't you because 
when you first looked like you were going to get nicked, you ran off to the Foreign Legion, which is another amazing, incredible chapter, Erwin, of your life, which I'm not even going to ask you to talk about because I want well, people I'll to t- read I'll tell you very quickly. I'll tell you very quickly. I fled like a coward. I was a coward, Jason. I had no courage. That's why I joined the French Foreign Legion. But I found some sense of order. I was there for a couple of years. I was in Africa. It was amazing, amazing experience. But I knew I was running from terrible things. But I think that that order and discipline, it gave me the sort of self-discipline. Because Legion is very disciplined, but it's about self-discipline. It doesn't just beat you down with discipline. The whole system is to to get you to be self-disciplined. I mean, it is all about being almost a robotic soldier, if I'm honest. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's, yeah. But I'd had nothing. I had no family. I had no grounding. And so that was my first experience. Of rules. Your first experience of boundaries. Yeah, ba- boundaries. And also the philosophy is, you know, the main sort of mantra for the foreign legion is Legio Patria Nostra. The legion is my home. The legion is my family. And I'd found a family at last. But of course, it, it was too late. I was there on the run, but when I went to prison, I was quite disciplined in myself. You know, my my, my self control and things. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't. Which is which guilty. is part which is part I guess which you know is the key for how you got through those early years. You know, those ten years before you started writing. It was. It, it was you know, the training and. Well, I, also, I when I came when I was extradited, it was all of the press and everything. And when I was in the high security. Uh, system it was it gave me a bit of credibility oh he's the legionnaire yeah. you know <laughs> yeah and i went along with that because yeah, i sure you know i it gave me a little bit of protection yeah sure. also credibility which is you know the prisoner hierarchy is so strange you know people outside you think there's rules in prison and you know you've you've been in the governor's office jason you've seen the big the big book of prison rules but actually on a prison landing there are no rules in a prisoner hierarchy and you've got to you got to try and figure out how the hell do I, where do I fit in here? So me being the legionnaire, yeah, gave me a bit. I'll take me some, that. Yeah. <laughs> the legionnaire, I'll take that. Yeah, no. Yeah. But I was under no illusion, I've got to tell you. You know, I never used it in a way to sort of bully people or, or dominate anything. You know, remember, prison's terrifying. It's a terrifying place. I, I don't care how tough you are, how hard you are, how big you are. Prison's a terrifying place. You know what I think some of the listeners won't know, and, and you know, you can, go into prison a lot and like I you know honored that I go in and speak to the lads and do time with the lads but you can go in and you get a bit blase it's all fine and uh you know the wings are kind of organized and especially if you go through and when everyone's banged up you think okay this is a bit bleak but I get it but like yesterday we were coming out and they were exercising the usual exit so we had to go through C to get out and all of a sudden just because it was we were going a different way and we went up to the twos instead of down to the gates we'd never been through C to get out and we kind of got ourselves into a little corner and someone I think someone shouted something about lock stock or something recognized me and it all just suddenly just turned and it all just got a little bit scary and it's the first yeah. time in a long time where I was like the fact that, that this works is is a lot to do with chance rather than Jason you you go in there and let me tell you something people will appreciate so much you going in there and showing some some compassion yeah, some well, humanity but there's a secret place in there that you'll never get in unless you're in it unless you're on that yard unless you're unless you're on that landing as a prisoner there's a it's like a secret it's like a secret dimension that you only know about when you're actually in there you know i met prison officers who, who'd been officers for 25 years who still didn't understand that secret prisoner thing they, they talk about jail craft because they've got to try and figure out how to how to run these places but actually that prisoner dimension is a, is a secret dark place that you only really get to see when you're in there. You know? yeah.
you when you were at Wandsworth, I think you were on twenty three hour bang up. And I just want to just touch on because of COVID, because the lads now are all on twenty three hours, yeah. and how that affects you, and how you know there's G wing on uh, in uh, Wandsworth. I don't know Wandsworth as well as Brixton, but I could see the difference, and I could see. I could feel the uh, heaviness on that wing with people doing longer sentences. And um, how do you get through that? How do people, is there, is, there a, is there a way, is there a secret to getting through through that sort of time? Because it's got nothing to do with the hardness of physical hardness. It's got nothing to do with No. It. Well, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's a sort of psychological uh, robustness, if I'm honest. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, my, my first year, so it's got life, I've got 99 years, and here I am banged up in Wandsworth 23 hours a day. But I sort of, because I was relieved that, that my old life was over, I wasn't too worried about where I was going, you know, where this journey was. And, you know, how did I get, I, I got through exercises, reading, I was allowed six books a week from the prison library, but a little converted cell on D-Wing. So if, when you walked past, when you're on that hexagon, D2 landing was the high security landing. That was my, that was my landing. And they had a little converted cell there. You could go and get some books, six books a week I was allowed. And it's quite odd because even now, I, I wish I had the patience that I had then. At the moment, time just runs away with me. But when, for some reason, time completely slows down. And I think what you have to do when you're in that situation is, is slow down your thinking. Because it's, I actually read a book about a chap who was on the run. I don't know if it's a true story. I read this book in Wandsworth. About, and he was on the run. He was in the bushes. And he, he'd made himself a little hide. What he did, he controlled his thinking. He, he slowed down his thinking. Um, and that's why I, I sort of did that, if I'm honest. I, I, I did that in a prison cell for 23 hours a day. <laughs> when I look back, I think, how the hell did I manage that? Well, I, I think I think my Legion experience helped me in terms of, you know, you can manage anything in those, you know, whatever comes in the world, you can manage it, cope with it. I'm just surprised. Think, think, I'm just surprised those lads, you know, that, like you say, they must have gone to a mental place and that slowing down of your mind. Well, how the, my, my, my fear at the moment, because we, we've got guys we, well, and, and women at the moment who, who the regimes are so restricted. I mean, my, my first year in Wandsworth was completely as it is now. I was just, you know, locked in my cell, open three times, three times a day for water and empty the toilet bucket and get some food. It was very, very limited. But I'm talking about 1984, 85, you know. At the moment, because, you know, I edit Inside Time, Jason, yeah. the, the yeah. news prisoners. I'm a subscriber. Um, you subscribe? Oh, yeah. good man, good man, good man. But the thing is, we get lots, so many letters from people. Some actually are enjoying it. So, I know, it's funny. Yeah, some people get, oh, God, yeah, because they don't have to go out on the landings and associate with people. With like, another, another strange thing about our prisoners, people outside think, prisoners they're all mates together all gangsters and they're on the same team they're all having a great time in there no we we cram thousands and thousands and thousands of relatively dysfunctional strangers into these places we call prisons and we we expect them to sort of cope and get on and rehabilitate you know so, so some people i mean I, I i knew people who elected to go around the block the segregation unit for years just to not have to associate with all these strangers because prison sort of forces you to be gregarious and and if you can't manage it i mean you you know you, you're on a, you're on a wing you're on a landing and you've got to say hello to the same person 20 times a day because if you don't say hello he'll think you've blanked him and then a tension develops between you <laughs> next thing you know you're, you're going to get stabbed or something it's, it's such a the, the psychology of prison is unbelievable you know that thing of uh 
of having a to find your identity in the nick you know whether it's the legionnaire or the letter writer or the chef you know the geek there's a guy that I'm working with at the moment in Wandsworth and he's a cook, you know, he's, he's an, oh, incredible, he's an incredible cook, but you know, he uses a kettle and a toaster that's, you know, had the plastic taken off the toaster. He reckons that with a kettle and a toaster, he can cook um, a beef Wellington. I mean, he's, he's, this is, the, here's another thing about people in prison. Often they, they, they're thought of as a bit stupid because they're criminals, you know, but adversity allows you to be incredibly creative and yeah. figure out ways to do things that you'd never imagined before that situation. So, wow. Oh, hello you. My name's Tom Price. Hello, I'm Dave Cribb. You should come and join us every day. We do a podcast called Cabin Fever, where we talk to loads of comedians who've had to cancel everything else in their lives. So they come on our podcast instead, don't they, Dave? Yeah, it's an isolation podcast. Uh, it's Dave, were you yawning the at the start of that sentence then? Was it just a little yawn? <laughs> yeah, it's basically the Great Big Owl isolation podcast. We'll have people on from all our podcasts, from your Rule of Threes, your Brian Rogers, your musicals, your bitchins. If you like any of our podcasts, if you like any of those people, chances are they'll be logging onto the Zoom call and just chatting because, let's face it, they got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bell. All right, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin F-E-A-3709. Oh, 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 that's our Twitter name. You've said often in articles and in your books that you would sort of be going along and you'd look look through a bus window at normal lives, normal houses, people taking their kids to school, kissing their kids yes. at the school gates. And, and you'd look at it and it was so far away from your own reality that you had no way and no means of getting to that world. It was like a, a different planet. And I think what people don't understand is that the desire to have that life is massive, but once as you depict very clearly and beautifully in, in your latest book, you know, once you've had a life and a childhood and upbringing, it's a different, it's a different world. And, and to make that jump to normality, whatever the hell that is, is too huge and, and too alien and also too frightening. But also, how, how do you do it? Yeah, how do you do it? I did. I, when I was on the streets, I used to, I used to look at nice people and think, how, how the hell do you get to live in a house like that? Yeah, yeah. How, how do you get to be those people? You, 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 I, was, I was sort of, I was on the on the fringe, really, you know. Um, yeah. I of course, mean, I sank like like a lot of people. I sank badly, and um, you know, ended up causing incredible grief, which I'm I'm still struggling to live with now. But I've, I've got a second chance. I've got to I've got to try and do my best. That's why I do this, Jason. That's yeah. why I still talk about this stuff and, and write about this stuff. And, you know, I, I, I want people to be safer from people like I was coming out of prison. That's why I do this. Oh, in your book, Redeemable covers quite extensively and, and detailed about your your upbringing and um i just i found that really fascinating i suppose because you have a real skill and a real talent at writing and like i said to you at the beginning of this interview you know I, your early life and your your uh, upbringing is not unique you know and what i find incredible is that it's not documented like you can document it you know because the people who've lived that life the people who've been brought up that way or dragged up that way don't have the capability to, to record it, you know, and I think it's really important you did that. And with Marcus Rashford, you know, talking oh, recently about... great guy, yeah. With him talking about, you know, hunger and child poverty and that whole chapter that you wrote about, you know, being in your cut-down wellies and eating Weetabix with margarine on top of it. And it, it really made me think of, of that campaign that's happening now and about the nobility of people standing up saying i haven't got enough money to eat and i haven't got enough money to, yeah. to feed my kids and i just wanted to know how you still how you feel about kids going to school the way you did you know because you documented it and it's not unique to you you know it's it's massively a pro- massive i know good. well the good the good news is 
most kids who went who, who are going through that even now won't become like I like I became. There's no fixed correlation between hardship as a kid, criminality. You know, most kids make it through it. Um, but a lot don't. A lot end up in the criminal justice system, like I did in the care system. Marcus Rashford, my, I mean, <laughs> I can't get. Oh, I, I watch him every time he's on the news. I watch him. I think, my God, what, where's he, he's got so much money from football skill? He's still the most one of the most humble people when he speaks about you know children need, needing food. He must have struggled as a kid, and he's come through. And thank God for people like him. You know, thank God for people like like him you've done is that you know which i'm trying to make the listeners understand is that that upbringing you know in that depressingly familiar storyline of your life and many many lives where it goes child abuse care system juvenile offender prison proper and and then you know release re-addiction usually and then re-offending and that circle goes round and round and you've managed to you know your refusal to have it end where it was where it was destined to end you know i find incredibly up well that's what i did he, you know going back to wandsworth prison so in that prison cell i i started to think about how we how i'd become what i'd become jason but i saw my bed i thought you know was i born bad did i choose to be bad was i made bad and this is me thinking in, in Wandsworth, thinking, geez, you know, how... And then, then I met Joan, basically said, you know, she told me nobody's born bad. We're all born lovable. Sure. We're all born with the potential to be the best versions of who we can be. That was Joan telling me that, and that made me cry, you know. Yeah. I said, I said, even me, even you, she said, Because <laughs> I've got this theory. I think we're born with a, a blueprint of a personality. Because me and my sister, we, we, we're very similar. We've had totally different experiences in life. But we're very similar. We laugh. We're very funny together. But I think our character comes from our nurturing. I, I, th I think character comes from the people that are nurturing us. That's where yeah. our character, our values and things. Of course. I've, I've still got my personality, but I, my, my character is mine. Not didn't come from my dad. It did for a while. Uh, but I managed to get out, you know, I managed to create my own character. I mean, I don't want to be over emotional about it, but you know, you call yourself a failed person, and if you take it away from you, Owen, because I know you're how self-effacing you are about that, but it's not really about failed people. It's about it's also about people who have failed, you know. And and I and I think yeah. that there's a real truth to that, you know. Bringing it on to what we were talking about about the prisons, you know, um, the chief prison inspector, I think he's called Peter Clark, and he he was yes. just saying that just, uh, just stood down, but top guy, yeah, yeah. And he he was just saying that prisoners are losing hope. At one point in your book, you describe you and your wingmates very eloquently. You describe it, it as my favourite sentence of the book. And you describe it as that there was a barely a spoon of hope between us. I just love that expression. But my point being is, you know, I know you're not a reformer in any way. I mean, but what can we do? What can we, what is the best way to give these people hope? Apart from like we've talked before about giving them the skills they need, you know, a chance to alter that depressing circle of offending and reincarnation. Well, look, you know, people often say, what advice would you give no, to prisoners? You know, I'll never give them advice. But what I would say is, if anybody says to me, oh, it's, the chips are cold and I can't get in the, my kettle's not working. And, you know, I say, look, use it as an experience, a life-enhancing experience. Because, you know, when, when, I, when I was in the Foreign Legion, I was, I was in the desert in a sleeping bag. And I had nothing at all other than my, my rations and my gun sort of thing. And, and, and when I was in prison, I had a bed. Yeah. I had books. My mind was mine. They've captured me. I, I'm, I'm incarcerated, but my mind is mine. You know, that's, that's the most important thing I would tell anybody in prison. Years ago, there was a, 
advertising campaign by The Guardian, Free Thinkers Welcome. And I realised it, it took me years, Jason, but I became a free thinker in prison. And, and I, I decided to use prison as a, as a, a good experience. Wh- whatever challenges come, you sort of manage it and then you become stronger. Because you overcame that, you know. If you want to do well in prison, everything that comes at you, you've got to manage it well. You've got to just say, okay, I'll do this. I'll manage that. I'll t-. You know, you you got a terrible officer, work around him. Mm-hmm. you got a good officer, gravitate towards him. you got a great psychologist, listen to what she's saying. Gravitate towards the good people. Use prison as a platform, as a springboard to a better way of living. That's what I did. Now, I didn't know I was doing that, Jason, at the time. You know, I don't have a, I don't have a sort of, a, you know, a, a sort of a, a blueprint of how to do prison. I, I don't know, honestly. I, I'm at the moment. I don't think I could do it now. Two reasons. One, well, you're soft I'm, now, aren't you, Owen? You've got a lovely. I'm too life. old. I'm, I'm soft and <laughs> flabby. <laughs> I'm not going to drive you mad, but I'm just going to finish with one quote about you, um, which I think is really important, and I'd like to say before we say goodbye. Here we go. So. A terribly abused, apparently mindless thug who has transformed himself into a highly cultured, deeply thoughtful man. A walking testimony to the power of redemption. Erwin James. Thanks, mate. Hey, thanks, Jason. That's, you made me cry now. Bloody hell. <laughs> uh, Jason, great to talk to you, sir. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.